Hello, and welcome to the most timely episode of Truth and Consequences ever. This week's guest, Sarah Klein, is an attorney for the California law firm Manley, Stewart, and Finaldi, the first known victim of USA Gymnastics coach and sexual abuser Larry Nasser, and close friend of my co-host Catherine Robb. Sarah dropped some major hints for us toward the end of this episode about upcoming efforts to hold the FBI accountable for failing to take action against Larry Nasser, despite numerous reports made by his former victims and others. Then, just this week, the news broke that more than 90 sexual abuse victims of Nasser's submitted claims totaling $1 billion to the FBI, saying investigators could have prevented Nasser from continuing his reign of terror for an entire year after they received credible reports of his ongoing abuse. Gymnasts filing these claims include Simone Biles, Allie Raisman, Michaela Maroney, and Maggie Nichols. Sarah's law firm is representing some of these brave gymnasts who have stepped up to do what the FBI wouldn't, get the truth out about dangerous abusers. Sarah Klein is one to watch, and she has a great interview. So let's listen. Hello, and welcome to Truth and Consequences, a podcast about trauma and its aftermath, where we talk about the difficult and often surprising challenges that affect us in the wake of trauma and other life-altering events. I'm your host, Miranda Pacchiana. I'm a writer and personal coach with a master's in social work and the creator of the website and online platform, The Second Wound. I am joined again by my co-host and friend, Catherine Robb. Catherine is a mother of five, an attorney, writer, survivor, and the executive Director of Child U.S. Advocacy, which fights for legislation to protect children and prevent child abuse and neglect. Hey, Catherine. Hey there. Nice to see you, my friend. You too. And our guest today is Sarah Klein. Sarah is a mother of girls and an attorney from the California law firm Manley, Stewart, and Finaldi. She is also one of the first known victims of former Olympic women's gymnastics Dr. Larry Nasser. Sarah was an elite gymnast who trained from the age of eight under coach John Geddert, the head coach for the 2012 U.S. Women's Olympic team. Did you want to throw in something? She no, was I'm, I'm just pretending to vomit. Don't worry. I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> whose gym she describes as highly abusive and cult-like and far worse even than the sexual abuse she suffered by Nasser. At Larry Nasser's sentencing hearing, Sarah delivered a victim impact statement. Speaking as victim 125, she told Nasser, you changed the course of our entire lives. Sarah is the winner of the 2018 Arthur Ashe Courage Award, which she accepted on behalf of herself and the hundreds of other survivors of Nasser's sexual abuse. She sits on the board of directors of Child U.S. Advocacy, and she is the host of the podcast Bar Fights. Today, Sarah is a widely respected advocate for legal, cultural, and political change and a leading voice on sexual abuse and other legal issues in the media. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me. This is great. Oh, and it's Sarah such an is honor. also a dear friend <laughs> of Catherine's. Yes, and this is my first time meeting you. God, no, it's so good to be here. Catherine Rob is my hero in life. When I grow up, I want to be just like her. So when she comes to call in, I always say yes. Ah, uh, well, samezies. Um. I, I'm just so honored to have you here today, Sarah. I have been doing a deep dive into your work and your story, and 
Um, I know how valuable your insights are and your time. So we so appreciate having you here today. Oh my gosh, that's so sweet. And right back at you guys. So I would like to just start by throwing it to you and what you would like to describe from you know your history and how you got here today. Yeah, so I started gymnastics at five. I met Larry Nasser at eight. Um, he was not yet a doctor, which a lot of people don't realize. He um, had come to our gym asking to volunteer as an athletic trainer. And, you know, first red flag, right? Absolutely. Um, one weird thing people don't realize about him is that he won like a high school letter, like a varsity letter in high school for women's gymnastics because he was volunteering around the women's gymnastics team back in high school. So that says a lot, super creepy about where this idea of getting access to prepubescent or pubescent females in leotards came from. Um, And as you mentioned, you know, the gym was a crazy place. It was just horrible. It was like, you know, my brother's in the Marine Corps and he went through Marine officer candidate school. Um, It's probably something similar to that, but for eight year olds and up. Oh my gosh. For eight year olds and up, it was just horrible. Thanks to our coach, uh, John Getter. And so Larry was this great guy. And it sounds weird to say that, but I had no fear of him. I had no red flags. I never felt uncomfortable. I thought he was so sweet, so kind and really, really safe. And our parents felt that way. Also, he was great. And so, you know, flash forward 17 years and I'm still going back (laughs) to Larry. He's now a four-time Olympic gymnastics doctor. He's kind of famous in our little gymnastics world. Well, he's definitely famous. You know, he's the guy that carried Carrie Strug off the mat when she broke her ankle to win the Olympic gold. That was Larry. Bella Mm -hmm. Caroli is standing there. But Larry's the one actually carrying her off. So it's like, I know him. This is so cool. An iconic American moment, right? Iconic American moment. And I um, am pretty educated at that point. I had gone to college. I'm in law school. And I still believe wholeheartedly that his sort of manipulations and medical treatments, and I'm going to do this and release this muscle, which leads to this, which leads to that. And you're too tight here. And your back is always going to hurt if we don't release that. Like it just sounded so normalized and really helpful. Um, I still didn't pick up on it. Um, And so began, you know, the decline (laughs) of my life where I just couldn't put my finger on what the hell was wrong with me. Um, I withdrew. And now I've learned it's pretty common to like get so anxious. You can't leave your house sometimes for survivors. That was me. Like I couldn't, I had to work up to like getting groceries for the week. Like it would take me all of Saturday to like even go to the grocery store. I was so nervous. I was so uh, overstimulated by simple things like Rite Aid which is so weird compared to how I live my life now. Um, But that lasted seven or eight years where I really didn't have good friendships. 
people thought like my friends at work were like, you're shady. You live such a shady, like, what are you up to all this time? You don't ever go out. You don't do anything. You're not dating anybody. You know, you must be up to something. And I'm like, no, I'm really just laying on my couch, reading books. That's all I did. And that was all I could do. So it's like your nervous system knew what you'd been through, but your your head didn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in those intervening years, my body too started to decline. I got diagnosed with stage four endometriosis. I basically self-diagnosed because I went to so many different doctors. I was getting a colonoscopy at 29 years old, which was, you know, completely clean. I was getting, you know, going to the, the gynecologist and everybody kept saying it's in your head, it's in your head. So every time I got that horrifying, debilitating pelvic pain, I just started going to the emergency room. I'm like, if I show up here enough, they're going to believe me. And they never did. And I finally just read and read and read and read and got myself to the premier endometriosis surgeon in the country in Atlanta, paid out of pocket, right? We talk about like civil lawsuits and why survivors deserve financial compensation for this stuff, which I'm sure we'll talk about, but paid out of pocket several thousand dollars to get this surgery, to travel, to stay in a hotel, all these things. And on his little application, his intake form, it said, have you ever been sexually abused? I wrote, no, he did my surgery. He came to my hospital bed and he said, that's the worst case of stage four I've ever seen. Almost every organ in your pelvis was affected. Your bladder, your bowel, we took out your appendix. You have 10% of one ovary left. I'm really sorry. You're severely compromised in terms of fertility, Um, your uterus, all the things. And he says to me again, have you ever been sexually abused? And again, I'm like, no, not me. Nope. Yeah. Um, How interesting that he needed yeah. to make that connection. Yeah. Endometriosis, I've since learned, is super common in survivors. It's, yeah. it's, you know, they say women hold your emotions in your sort of pelvis region. Mm-hmm. Um, your colon is the second brain. It has more nerve endings than any other organ in your body, like all this stuff. And, and when you hear it all, you know, now I'm like, oh, I should have been able to piece that together. But this was before me too. This is before anybody's talking about early childhood trauma, sexual trauma of any sort. And absolutely. And if I could just throw in, I mean, it's not up to you to figure that out when you're going to expert after expert, right? And when they're saying to you, it's all in your head, I mean, okay, so then where do you take that? Because let's look at it holistically. If it's coming from your head, that means it's emotional. Yeah. But emotion can create damage to your body. And it it speaks to the neurobiological element of stress. Right. And now we understand that with the body keeps the score and understand really what stress does to the body and probably more accurately what trauma does to the body, especially when the trauma happens when you're a minor. Yeah. We're starting to see it. So, I mean, good for that doctor at that point seeing that. I'm pretty sure he would be in the minority of most doctors. Right. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Yep. 
all he dealt with all day, every day was endometriosis, which is not something that OBGYNs know how to handle whatsoever. They just pump a bunch of drugs in you and put you into medical menopause and tell you to get pregnant and, you know, Mm -hmm. ablate it. And then it grows back with a vengeance. Um, He really understood it and understood the the autoimmune response and, and all of that. But the other effect of everybody telling me I was crazy was I started to believe it. And I I started to believe that there was something so fundamentally wrong with me that I was not meant to exist in this world. And and I was like very close to just taking my own life several times, holed up in my apartment in immense pelvic pain, detached from the entire world, still couldn't put my finger on really what had gone so wrong in my life that I was feeling these ways, thinking you have everything. You're smart. You have all these degrees. What the hell is wrong with you? You should probably just be dead. Mm, um, and I, I think that's something survivors, it's a pretty common story. It is. You know, and I think it's also the good guy, you know, Nasser was such a good guy. You know, he's no different than uh, Jerry Sandusky. He's no different than Bill Cosby. Like these are adored, you know, they know how to play it the manipulation, the grooming. So naturally you start to question yourself because everybody loves this guy. He's such a great guy and he's sweet and he brings us candy and, you know, all of that. So it feeds into your own self-doubt. A hundred percent. And even as an adult, he was still that guy for me. He was a mentor. I would go home and visit my parents on Christmas break from law school or whatever and meet him for lunch and talk and catch up. And he would mentor me and how's school and what are you up to? And then we'd go back to Michigan State Sports Medicine. He would give me a pair of loose shorts to throw on, no underwear, and he would treat me. And I was so lucky in my own mind that I could skip the line. I never had to show my insurance card. I never had to, you know, make an appointment. There I was at Michigan state sports medicine with my famous Olympic gymnastics, you know, doctor who was my friend whose wedding I went to when I was a kid. You know, it's just oh. all so bizarre. <laughs> back. And how could what you possibly, <laughs> right. But how could you possibly see it when you start out at age eight, right? And it's not just you and your gym, even it's all of these people in the state through the university, through this Olympic team, they're all saying to you that this man is great. This man's respected. This man's legitimate. He's kind to you, you know. I think it's hard enough for survivors to admit to themselves that what they experienced was abuse when it's a lot more obvious. Yeah. So how could, how how could you possibly overcome all of that? And, you know, the other thing is, is that the good guy image that they build and build and build, it gives them power. Mm -hmm. It's not just, Oh, he's a good guy. We can trust him. It's I hate, I hate to say it, but it's the patriarchy. It's another Good guy, power, entitlement, control, and privilege. Um, And that's just another tool that they use. Sarah, we talk about this a lot in the work that we do. We see it all the time, whether it's priests or teachers or doctors or family members. Um, It is something that we see in our culture that is more around male power and privilege and control, right? 
A hundred percent. And it's, it's eerie. The amount of cases I've worked on, the amount of cases you've seen, Catherine, where it's the same profile, you know, these people, you can name the characteristics and it fits all of them. You know, I always joke, but it's not that funny. They're always on the school board. They're always volunteering in the church. They're on the always, PTA. Yeah, always. Yep. Always right, like they're they're pillars of their community, um, or pillars of their you know world, whether it be Hollywood or athletics or the church or whatever you know their town, the school, whatever. Um, it's a great it's, disguise, and it's a great yeah. way to shut down anybody who wants to speak up. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yep. yep. So. Tell us about how you had that moment where you realized that you actually had been abused by Larry Nasser. Yeah, I mean, I wish I could say I was this big whistleblower. I identified it. I had a come to Jesus moment. I didn't. And I think one of the reasons was I was so young and one of the very first um, and also that I wasn't seeing him as my doctor as much as a lot of the other girls met him in the context of Michigan State Sports Clinic. You're making an appointment with the doctor. I met him in a back room when he was 20 something. Um, and we, you know, had been to each other's houses and, you know, his wedding and all this stuff. So it was particularly hard for me to identify what had happened. So I didn't have that light bulb moment until that article came out in the Indie Star. Now, something I haven't said a lot was in 2012, a group of us, we called ourselves like the originals um, of John Gettert's mm -hmm. gymnast, mm -hmm. flew to Sacramento <laughs> to go to the Olympic trials because John Getter was finally going to get his girl to the Olympics. Jordan Weber was going to make the Olympic team. We, we all kind of knew it. She was the world champion at the time. So we all fly there and we're in the bleachers watching her make the team. She's a great friend now and watching John Getter be named 2012 head Olympic women's gymnastics coach. You know, a part of us in the mafia kind of felt like we were all one, right? We all sacrificed for him to get that moment. And then you see Larry Nassar down there on the floor as the Olympic, you know, doctor. And my teammate said to me, oh, they're still letting pervy Larry around little kids. And we kind of laughed and we're kind of like, oh, there's Larry. So, you know, they're still letting them do this kind of thing. But we never said more than that. And then that was 2012, 2016, the same teammate texts me the article in the Indie Star, USA Gymnastics doctor, Larry Nassar accused of sexual abuse. I didn't even have to open it. I already knew. I already knew in that instant, absolutely, this is what happened. Um, but I had become a mother between 2012 and 2016. I had a two-year-old little girl and it was like a moment of crystal clear, like what the actual F, you know? And um, my other teammates had different reactions. Most of those original old girls 
got on airplanes and flew to Larry's house and consoled him and ripped all of the accusers to shreds, including myself. Um, when I made my first public comment about John Gettert, I got more hate and social media backlash. And I was called a traitor and, you know, a liar and all this crazy stuff. Um, I'm sh- I know for a fact, many of those girls were also major victims. Um, it's really striking that many of them are in their mid forties now, never married, no kids, no intimate relationship. Many of them, you know, sort of stood true mm-hmm. to that loyalty because I think it's too hard sometimes to acknowledge um, Absolutely. that what you thought you knew about your life and who you were and how you grew up was, was actually one big lie. Wow. Um, so it was crazy. It was a very <laughs> crazy time. Sarah, what, it, what do you think was behind, like, I'm just wondering if you can dig deeper into in 2012, when the comments were made watching, oh, there's Larry the perv and sort of laughing it off. I'm just wondering if you, if you've thought about that and and what it means to survivors in general and to the survivors that you represent, what do you think is, is behind that dynamic? I think it was being an adult and recognizing that those little girls down there on the floor with their leotards half down with a grown man's hands all over them. Larry was the king of massage. Like he, he was a doctor of osteopathic medicine. So being treated by him wasn't, you know, stick out your tongue and say, ah, it was lay down face down on a massage table, pull your leotard off or down, let him, or let him give you like a wedgie and have your bare bottom exposed and let him use his elbows and his hands and all of his kind of chiropractic massage techniques. Um, and I think as adult women, we were kind of able to be like, haha, you know, um, but I definitely did not have a follow-up thought of, oh, he's abusing kids. It was more kind of like, oh, it's kind of creepy that he touches little girls, you know, and their naked bottoms. Um, But I'm guessing we all probably knew somehow, Mm -hmm. some way deep down and just either never talked about it, never asked each other if, you know, that's what he was doing. I know some of my teammates who were younger said they would talk about it amongst each other, especially some of my Olympian friends, you know, the 2012 and 2016 girls would say, Hey, did he do this to you? Yeah. That's just what he does. It's normal. And they would kind of confirm it for each other. We never had that. I see a lot of, and I see it in my own history of abuse and what happened to me. It's, you know, and I know you and I've talked about this a little bit is just that self-doubt that it creates and you don't want to just rock the boat or create any waves. And I think there's this cultural type of where we're trained to just sort of be silent and, oh, it's not that bad, or it couldn't be this. And I think that is part of, of what happens to victims is that instilling doubt and just hush up 
I think so, too. It sounds to me like saying those things about him being pervy. It's like you guys were seeing some of it, like you were partway there. And I think you and I have talked, Catherine, about kind of opening that door a little bit and saying, hey, everyone, like, does anyone notice this doesn't feel right? And then it gets slammed in your face. And so you don't have the safety to take those next steps, which are really hard, awful steps when it really does come down on you. It's actually happened. Yeah. And I think too, in the sport of gymnastics or in sport in general, we were so physically beaten down and beaten up um, and in a sense, sort of physically abused. I mean, pressed so far beyond what's normal, forced to compete on broken bones through excruciating pain that we sort of stopped having any uh, dialogue between our brains and our bodies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think um, even now as an adult, I struggle with that. Um, I broke my toe a couple years ago and I dropped my laptop on it and a bone came out through my skin and it, it was excruciating. And I sort of fell on the ground and started laughing, hysterically laughing, because we were told you're never allowed to cry if you're in pain. And, you know, then, you know, my friends that were there said, you have to go to the emergency room right now. And I said, no, no, I'm fine. It's fine. Like your bones out. And I'm like, no, no, I'll go in the morning. It was like eight o'clock at night. No, no, I don't feel like driving there that whole night. I sat up writhing in pain, you know, just going ow, 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 just excruciating. But something in me didn't allow myself to seek medical attention immediately, you know, and I think that's still remnants of that detachment from body, which definitely plays into not being able to identify <laughs> inappropriate touch of, of, of any sort. It's that disassociation that we engage in. I didn't know I was doing it when I was a child. And I have many stories of when I did it as a young adult into my mid thirties, I just wouldn't make that connection. It was literally as if I had thrown it so far back, I was blind to it. Yeah. Yep. And that environment that you're describing, Sarah, in the gym that you called cult-like, it's also teaching you how dangerous it is to speak up for yourself. Any kind of pushback was immediately punished. It's actually like the perfect environment to abuse girls, to sexually abuse girls. I mean, what you're describing is abuse by the gym, of course. So that leads me to actually asking you, can you tell us what happened with Getter uh, yeah. in later years? Yeah, he, uh, yeah, he, um, he was a horrible person. I, I really can't think of one redeeming thing to say about who he was. Um, he joked with us in 2012, oh, I'm so much easier on the girls than I was back then, you know, in my thirties and he was still horrible. Um, it was one of the worst things that's ever happened to children, you know, in the greater Lansing area of all time. It was, it was pure hell, pure fear. And finally, 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 decades later, um, the Michigan attorney general 
Dana Nessel's office um, heroically charged him with something like 24 counts of child endangerment, abuse, sexual abuse, human trafficking. And on that morning of his arraignment, he told his family he was driving there on his own and he pulled off at a rest stop and committed suicide behind a dumpster instead of facing the music. Which is true to him. It's true. It's true to his form. The most arrogant guy you've ever met. He happened to be very good looking back in the day. He was like a stud, like Tom Cruise in Top Gun, you know, total alpha male, um, narcissistic, arrogant. And so, of course, he would do something like that before ever being put in a position of inferiority. That man would never spend a night in prison. He would never put up with what Larry put up with, put up with. I I mean, I should take that back, but in terms of sitting there for all those victim impact statements, he would never do that ever. He took control. Sounds like Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah. He took the, he took the cowardly way out as well. Yep. Yep. What was that like for you, Sarah? You know, that for me was far worse than anything had happened with Larry, far worse than the sentencing, far worse than learning about Larry being, you know, a pedophile. It was horrifying. I vomited. I was, was really traumatized and ended up having to go like on live TV that night that was a terrible choice that I made. Nobody made me do that, but I did it because they were, you know, sort of dead set on getting a survivor to talk. And I've always felt this sense of responsibility and I've known that I can do it a little bit easier than some of those younger kids. And Mm -hmm. so I did it, but it was a bad idea and I was a wreck and a mess and I think I underestimated the effect that had on me. I mean, the year after he did that, again, I just went into a really hard, really hard spot. And the way I kind of described it was like, it's like you're, if you're abusive, horribly abusive dad shot himself, like you're, you're, you're still going to have like, you're not like, Oh, good riddance. You know, you have complicated feelings about it. You have, you know, you have all these memories and you have all this stuff. It was, I don't know that for me was way harder um, than Larry being locked up for life. And that was just a little over a year ago, right? Um, I can't remember because I read it was together. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, February 2021. And I saw you, you spoke to NPR like that night or something. Yep, that sounds about right. So yeah, yeah it was really hard. It was really hard. And I ended up doing this like great retreat in October that helped me like release a lot of that. But from February through October, I I had nightmares. You know, I had one nightmare. Ironically, a couple of days ago, they still come up, but another Gettert nightmare where he shot me first and then himself behind the dumpster um, because he said, this is your fault for speaking out and your fault for, you know, all of this. So I still, that stuff still comes up. Mm, um, it's, it's so hard. I think, you know, for all of us, it never goes away. It's yeah. a, it's, a, it's a wound or a scar or something that you sort of learn to live with. Um, and you just get on your yoga mat every day and, and practice, <laughs> practice this thing called healing and this thing mm-hmm. called, you know, wholeness and, 
And, um, and it's a journey for sure. You know, in these cases where the perpetrator commits suicide, it's, it's like, you're almost at the doors of justice. You're almost there. And they take the, what I would call easy way out. Yep. It must have some, obviously a lot of conflicting feelings, but it must be a sense of incompleteness in terms of justice and accountability. A hundred percent. And ironically, that morning that he was being charged after the the attorney general announced it, I did a ton of media answering the question, how does this day feel for you? And by that evening, I was, you know, doing CBS this morning with Gail King talking about how this day felt to me in a very different light. So it was like whiplash um, all within maybe seven or eight hours. And yeah, I still, it's still on my mind and in, and on my heart in many ways. I think that from my own experience and the work that I do with other survivors, that what really helps looking back at those situations is to find a way to see it that puts us in the power seat. And I can see that in your story because you all outed him you led him to justice. He was getting held accountable. And I know that he escaped the true, literally the trial of that. But he also showed his true colors. And everybody knows now. And you all are the brave ones. You're the survivors. You're the ones who are going on to make lives and support each other and speak out. And I see you all as incredibly powerful and He's just a guy who hurt people. Yeah. Yeah. And the world's better off without him. Yeah. I I could not agree more. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I am really interested in hearing about what it's like for you to do the work you do as an attorney at the law firm you work at, where John Manley, one of the partners involved in lawsuits against, will you tell me? Yeah. So during um, the Nasser civil litigation, we had an incredible, amazing team of middle-aged males representing (laughs) a bunch of little girls and, you know, women. And they were incredible, led by John Manley, Barb Dalton, Mick Graywall, really, really wonderful people. Um, And they did an unbelievable job, especially given that we had bad law in the state of Michigan. They got justice for people like myself who had a a bad statute of limitations for many, many years before the case came to light. Um, But I found myself in this role of go-between. I was a survivor, but I was also a lawyer. I'd been a lawyer for, you know, maybe 10 or 12 years at the time. And I was also a mommy at the time. And some of these kids were 10 and 12 and 15 and 17 and and 20. And so I was able to go between this incredible team of legal minds and, you know, girls who were struggling and suffering and had very similar experiences to myself with Larry Nasser and John Gettert. And so when that case concluded, I saw a real 
real opportunity to do this work as a female, as a mother, and as a survivor who went through what was often a very arduous legal process, given the bad law, given the public interest in the story, given the, you know, heels dug in by Michigan State and USA Gymnastics and the, all of the sort of victim shaming and blaming and crazy sh- shit that they did. So I said, I got to be doing this. This makes perfect sense. And it allowed me to give real meaning to what I had been through. And I have never looked back. I hit the ground running. Um, I work with people that I could not respect more, many who are survivors and all we do, we don't take any other kind of case than sexual abuse cases, mostly child sexual abuse cases. And wow. it's a gift. It's a gift. My my clients come in very similar to how I was circa 2016, 17, 18. You know, my feet were not firmly planted on the ground. I was dealing with severe anxiety, depression. What is this going to look like? I can't do this. You mean I have to look him in the eyes? You mean I have to be deposed? You mean, right? Like all this stuff that felt purely insurmountable. And I I can say, I know I've been there. I had a client the other day being deposed and her perpetrator was going to be on Zoom. And she is, you know, a a middle-aged woman who was able to file a case through the Child Victims Act in New York, which Catherine was um, one of the, well, one of the main reasons that my client even had the opportunity to access the courts. And she said, Sarah, I'm not getting on the plane. I'm not doing the deposition. There's no way I can do this. You know, and I I was able to talk to her and, you know, she got on the plane and she did an amazing, incredible job, but she wanted to talk to me, Um, not, not some of the other lawyers who are loving and kind, but don't understand what that moment is. Um, So that's how I have ended up doing what I do. It's amazing. It's wonderful, Sarah. You know, I've thought a lot about how helpful it can be for clients, survivors who are clients, just to have someone really understand, you know, there are some really great attorneys out there. I know a lot of them that do this work, as you know, given the work I do, and they are exceptional and caring and kind and well-intentioned, but often say things that can trigger survivors, even the best of them. And I think Having your lens just is such a gift for your clients and maybe also a teaching tool for other lawyers. You know, I've I've thought a lot about what can we as lawyers ourselves and maybe even professionals in general teach lawyers who are representing these types of clients. You know, sometimes the slightest little thing can make a client feel a survivor feel re-victimized, ashamed. Did they make a mistake? Oh, it's my fault. And it's happened with me. And I feel like I'm pretty well versed on all of this and pretty strong about this. And I think there's, there is a real need for even the best attorneys out there to have input from survivors who understand what this can feel like. 
Thank you for that incredible compliment from an incredible person. And I could not agree more with you. I've seen, I've seen the most well-intentioned, brilliant lawyers sort of step in it. And with survivors, we're so skittish to begin with that one tiny misstep can cause somebody to say, I don't want to pursue this. I don't want to work with you. You know, I, you know, need to go back into, you know, my dark little apartment hole for the next seven years. Like I did right. Little tiny, just language nuance, that kind of stuff. It matters. I don't think some people realize how overwhelming and scary it is to go through a legal process even when you are an attorney like Catherine, there are times when it just feels so overwhelming and talk about activating your nervous system. You know, I got to a certain points where every time I would see a text or an email from my attorney, I would just freeze up. You just never know knew when it was coming. And, you know, they work a lot of hours and they might just ask you a question that to them is busy work. And to you, it's like stabbing you in the heart, you know, and, and I'm talking about really good quality, sensitive people. But it's just, I think, the way it goes to some extent. And I'm so happy that you're doing this work because it would really make a huge difference to have a fellow survivor. Thank you so much. I, I love what I do. And I have come full circle to deeply believe that maybe this all was supposed to happen to me for some greater reason so that I can pay it forward in a way that absolutely never feels like work, never feels like a job. It feels like an honor and I will treat it as such for all the days of my life. And people joke, they're like, how long did you take for maternity leave? I'm like, I didn't take a maternity leave because it's not work. You know, it, it's a gift. And, and you can't just put a survivor on hold and say, I'll be back in six weeks. You know, so um, I may or may not have had a baby sit, sitting or sleeping on my lap when I was working, but but it's it it never even feels like a job. It's a gift, and it's it's been a huge part of my healing process and sort of reclaiming my identity as an adult and as an adult who can who can hopefully make a difference. You know, Sarah, Marcy Hamilton and I had a conversation. I want to say it was about a year, year and a half ago. Um, I think it was one of my kids said, like, when are you retiring? I'm like, there's no retiring. I cannot see I you ever retiring. I, I can't retire. This is like, this is my, I'm passionate about this work to make yeah. the world a better place. Like, yeah. I'm waiting just... to hear that Catherine takes a day off. Yeah, I have yet to see that. (laughs) But it doesn't even feel like being on. So we don't need a day off because we feel like I I, I really feel that way too, Catherine. It's not, there's no retiring from something that that doesn't even feel like work to begin with. Um, It's service for the common good. That's it. That's it. And and when we're talking about children, no, there's no retirement. There's no retire. I'm not sure there's a retirement plan. In fact. <laughs> <laughs> you better keep working. <laughs> well, I have a question for you, Sarah, um, that came up for me when I was watching Athlete A. Um, it seems like the documentary finished up around 2019. And 
I want to know, is there any follow-up? Are there any more uh, protocols in place between the IOC, USAG, the FBI, lots of letters, um, as far as reporting and following up on kids getting abused? Great question. So the case against Michigan State wrapped up, I want to say, was it 2019 or late 2018? Um, The case against USA Gymnastics and the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee just wrapped up, is sort of still wrapping up. Settlement was reached. I am allowed to say that I was the co-chair of the Survivors Committee in Bankruptcy. What I will say is that it dragged out a million years too long. Settlement was reached. That does not mean change was made. Do I feel satisfied that the sport of gymnastics is safe? Absolutely not. Were we able to discuss things like non-monetaries and making sports safer? Yeah. But do I believe an organization that is as dirty and corrupt as USA Gymnastics is all of a sudden safe and all of a sudden cares about its athletes? Absolutely not. As evidenced by more terrible moves of let's consider a particular coach. I can't get sued for defamation, but (laughs) a particular Mm -hmm. coach with multiple, you know, complaints of severe abuse, Gettert style by high level Olympian athletes. Let's make him our next national team coordinator until we as survivors have to get on social media and say, are you effing crazy? And then they change their mind and say, we're going to make it three people now um, instead of one. And I, you know, I have lots of questionable oh, big deal. about those people. So, yeah, I you know, did, did a financial settlement get reached? Yes. Years too late. Years of my life having been poured into this every single week, every single week. I think I've been to something like 13 or 15 mediations um, in this case. And I I feel no closure, no positive feelings towards USA Gymnastics or the Olympic Committee or the International Olympic Committee. which I wrote a scathing op-ed about, you know, during these winter, these past winter games with the figure skating debacle and so on. I think Olympic sport or elite sport is about money, brand, Mm -hmm. reputation, money, 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 money. How many times can I say it? And they are not going to change and they don't care. And it's not safe. (laughs) I just realized the irony of what was it? The head of the Olympic committee, Steve Penny or something like that. That was USA Gymnastics. USA Gymnastics. Never, never been charged or he was charged, but nothing ever happened. Oh my God, you're kidding. No, the Corollis never charged. Right? What happened with those Senate hearings they held where he pleaded the fifth? Uh, nothing. Did that lead to anything? It no, was just I was, a show? 
I was there in person. I saw, I saw you in the documentary. um, And you know what else, you know, we had recent Senate hearings where Simone Biles, Allie Raisman, Maggie Nichols, and Michaela Maroney testified demanding the Department of Justice, you know, bring charges against the agents that covered this up. And, and they recently announced um, that they won't be bringing any charges against anybody. Because I guess if you work for the Federal Bureau of Investigations, you can hide reports in desk drawers. You can falsify testimony about child pedophilia, and you can hopefully get a job out of it from Steve Penny, and nothing mm. will happen to you. That's what we've learned from this case. I so saw that, that, that headline that's too. how Athlete A wraps up. Big fat nothing. Wow. Yeah. But maybe there is more to come. Wink, wink. We'll see in the next month or two um, <laughs> what might be coming. We'll see. Oh, well, stay tuned for that, Sarah. Yeah, you never know. Okay. <laughs> wink, wink. So do we cover everything? Do we have any other? Qu- oh, you know what I would love to ask you about mm-hmm. is just yesterday, as we're recording, the verdict came out on the Johnny Depp Amber Heard case. Mm. Do you have any mm. thoughts to share? And I'd love to hear Catherine's take on it too. Yeah, I, ha- I have c- conflicting thoughts on it, given that it was a defamation case about three very narrow sort of turns of phrase that were used in an op-ed. Listen, I believe in free speech. I believe survivors. I think this was a circus of all sorts and levels. I think it was a horrific idea to put cameras in a courtroom when it comes to the sensitivity of this case. And it got out of hand. And I think the jury was confused by the questions they were asking by the, you know, the the fact that they didn't put any monetary amounts, you know, on, on their verdict. I think it was a big disaster. What I hated seeing, whichever person anybody believes in this case, was that one side got treated viciously and horrifyingly and disgustingly in the court of public opinion and on social media. We have courts of law so that there are fair and impartial trials I don't believe this was a fair and impartial trial. I think there were major mistakes made um, along the way. And I think letting the public weigh in on something they know absolutely nothing about was a terrible mistake, a terrible idea. And I am embarrassed. Um, mm-hmm. I'm embarrassed. And I and I feel for Amber Heard immensely in the way she got treated and in the fact that I think, um, you know, it wasn't necessarily a fair trial in terms of who was in the right and who was in the wrong. I leave that question to the jury. I think it was a toxic, abusive, awful situation, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and bottom line is I believe survivors and I stand with survivors, but I wasn't on the jury. Catherine. Right. Thanks. That's really helpful. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I agree with you, Sarah, in so many ways. I think, you know, really in short, it was a, a really sad and pathetic circus 
of an extremely dysfunctional relationship. And, you know, I think the verdict speaks to misogyny and mm-hmm. sexism mm-hmm. that is Absolutely. alive and well. And I think it's profoundly sad. And I think it should have never been televised. It just was such a display of such a really dysfunctional and mental illness, yeah. you know, on stage. Yep. And I agree that I'm sure the jury was profoundly confused. And mm-hmm. I think at least the verdict on one side was clearly saturated in gender discrimination and misogyny and women are hysterical and liars and you know, I would agree. I wasn't on the jury. I didn't hear it all. And quite frankly, I didn't want to watch any of it because it yeah. was really unfortunate. But I, I think one of the lessons we can walk away with is that it is very clear that misogyny and sexism is alive and well yep. um, at every single layer and in every single faucet of our society. Yep. Agreed. Yeah, because just from a purely legal, right, like the jury is supposed to decide questions of legality, right? And and defamation of a public figure is so immensely hard to prevail on. Yeah, try try jumping through the malice hoop, right? That's no easy task at all. I learned that from you, Catherine. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, the the verdict made no sense to me. Just Mm -hmm. as a lawyer, it made no sense to me from a legal perspective. Um, it made no sense. So I'm not a lawyer and I didn't follow it very closely. I was really turned off by it. But of course, I know a fair amount um, just from, you know, reading a little bit and seeing headlines. And what stayed with me was the chill that it puts over survivors of any kind, whether it's emotional, you know, harassment, pushback or legal danger. I think it's a huge setback and it really concerns me. Yeah, I, I hope for any survivor listening, I challenge because I try to be a glass half full. I challenge survivors not to internalize it as a loss for survivors. I challenge survivors to see it as a case on defamation that they're going to teach in law school someday about how not to... <laughs> And, and, that, to, uh, and that will be appealed, by the way. That will be appealed. Mm. Okay. It, exactly. I would I see it as a one-off that it was put in the public eye and completely became something it never should have become. Well, I thank you for that perspective. That's really helpful. And I thank you so much for talking with us today. And um I just want to say again that. I'm so moved and so in awe of the work that you do and of that whole team of sister survivors that banded together and spoke up and supported each other and are working to heal from what never should have happened. So rock on. I'm behind you. Thank you so much. And I'll say about our our group of sister survivors, one thing we are really good at is laughing. 
that has been our therapy. So we don't get together and talk about, you know, now Serengeti and abuse. We laugh, we send pictures of our kids to each other. Um, and we, we have healed by choosing many of us to, to go forward with joy. So it's a wonderful I group. love it. What a great note to end on. And uh, you should see <laughs> Catherine and I at our weekly meetings. We are like schoolgirls. <laughs> we get so punchy and goofy. It's, yeah, lots of laughter. <laughs> lots of yeah, deep, deep thoughts and laughter. Uh, yeah, mixed so, together. I yeah, I yeah. love it. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been truly a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. Check out the Truth and Consequences website to find all our episodes, photos, and show notes. That's truth, the letter N, consequences.com. And as always, if you would go give me a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts, I would so appreciate that. You know, pass the word on, tell your friends, share on social media, follow me on all the socials. And just in general, thank you, everybody, for all the support. It means so much to me. And always remember, your truth matters. Original music for the Truth and Consequences podcast is composed and performed by my friend, David Boyle. Thank you, Adam, for all the technical support, emotional support, and being so good-natured and helpful to me, even when you caught COVID. I love you. Bye, everybody.